Amen. Thanks, Roman. I stood where Moses stood, on the peak of Mount Nebo, standing out, looking out into the promised land. It was an amazing moment to consider that I was there where Moses was, standing on that mountaintop, looking out to the promised land. Just, just from the top, you go down into the valley, up the Judean hills, and there to the west is Jerusalem. Down below is Jericho. What, what, what must it have felt like to be Moses standing there so many centuries ago? Standing there as he's looking out into the land that he had been wandering through the desert for for 40 years. It must have been bittersweet because Moses knew he would never step into that land. 40 years he'd been wandering to get there, to get there, knowing he would never step foot. You remember why? Remember that it was earlier, it was because Moses did something wrong and God told him, you won't enter. In fact, let's read, it's from Deuteronomy 32, 50. You shall die there on the mountain because you broke faith with me among the Israelites at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin by failing to maintain my holiness among the Israelites. Do you remember what Moses had done? I don't know if you remember the story, but they were, had been out in the wilderness for quite some time. God had sustained them with the, the manna, right, that had come every week, and God had sent quail, and he provided for them. And then uh, they had been through so much together, and, and one day they got thirsty, right? Remember the story? They were thirsty, and the Israelites were complaining to Moses once again about his leadership. Where, are you, where have you led us into this God-forsaken country we're thirsty, and, and so God told Moses and Aaron to speak to the rock, and the rock will gush forth water, and it was all gonna be good, but Moses got frustrated, and instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes it with his staff, and, uh, and then the water gushes out. Crazy story, right? And... Uh, now the question is, why did God punish them so much for what seemed like a small thing? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure why. In fact, interpreters uh, have a lot of different interpretations on why God got angry with Moses and, and why he punished him in this manner. And what for us might seem like a small infraction. We don't know exactly why. However, we do know that the consequence was Moses and Aaron were not allowed to enter the promised land. It doesn't seem fair. And, and oftentimes, this is the way we approach God in our fear. We, we, we think that God might be frivolous and impulsive. We think to ourselves, well, if Moses is punished for this little mistake, what chance do I have? What chance do I have if... If, if Moses was punished like this, too many of you approach God with this sense of fear that you'll not measure up, that you'll make some small mistake like Moses and bam, you'll be punished. You're done with. Your dreams you'll never accomplish. 
You'll mess up so bad that you'll not receive God's grace. Some of you live in fear even that you will lose your salvation. There's this whisper in your ear that God is impulsive, that God is frivolous. And just looking for a reason to zap you and punish you. But that's not God. And that's not God's character. It is a lie. But it's a lie that Satan loves to whisper in our ears. God is not frivolous. God is good and just and holy and loving. But in in spite of God's character, others of you live in the fear of failure so much that you think you aren't worthy of love because of all the bad things you've done. And you deserve to be punished. We've been looking at all these different fears that keep us from God, and and this is one of those. You, you, You think you're a failure, and you think you deserve to be punished. But it's a terrible way to live. And both of those thoughts about punishment are lies. But if we think this way, then we're missing the big picture. Our eyes have been blinded to who God is. We're interpreting the Moses story wrongly and we forget key pieces of the story and we fail to consider God's character. But think about this with Moses. Moses was chosen by God even though he was a murderer. Have you ever considered that? After Moses had killed an Egyptian Soldier, God chose him, not before. Moses was chosen, again, not for what he did or didn't do, but because of what God could do through him. Moses made mistakes. We will too. But Moses' salvation wasn't built on what he did. God saved Moses because of his grace and love. There were consequences for Moses' actions, and we don't know exactly why Moses suffered those consequences But here's the thing, we aren't God and we're not Moses. So it's not up to us or our life, but we we trust that God knew best for Moses. But in spite of the fact that Moses didn't get to go into the promised land, we do read these words at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And we read in the New Testament, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, how Jesus is transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration and it says the prophets Elijah and Moses attend to Jesus. Moses got to see Jesus face to face and talk with him. His failure wasn't a mortal failure. Moses' failure didn't keep him from the love of God. I want you to hear that. There were consequences of his actions, but the punishment wasn't fatal. I believe it was made in love to keep Moses from relying on his own gifts and to humble himself before God. Part of the reason we don't like Moses' punishment is because we don't know the whole story. We assume it's unfair. Why do we assume it's unfair? Because we want to act as God. We want to be in control. But if we have a base of a basis of understanding that God is good and that Moses' punishment was just, then we trust that God made the right decision. So how does this relate to our scripture from 1 John? Glad you asked. 
Let's take a look again at John's text and see such an important key in our life in Jesus and how we live our lives without unhealthy fear. Here's the text again. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears does not reach perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. This is such a powerful verse. And it's part of a larger section of 1 John where, he's, and, and where John is explaining the origin, the inspiration, and the results of Christian love. Oh, that we could grasp this verse. Oh, that we could truly understand the depth of this, of this verse. I wish I had the words to explain. And this is where I trust the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit can convict you and, and explain it better than I could. But I do pray right now that God would give us wisdom and open our hearts to receive this verse and to understand it and to live it. In its most basic sense, this is what 1 John four eighteen and 19 is saying. If you are filled with love, there is no room for fear. Let me say it again. If you're filled with love, there is no room for fear. But too often, we live in a state of constant fear. We've talked about those fears that fill our lives. Fear of failure. Fear of rejection. Fear of punishment. Fear that we're not good enough. Fear that we're going to fail in such a way that God will never forgive us. Fear that we're going to lose our salvation. And these fears, they, they fill up our lives. And, and, and sometimes I see it in Christians often. On the outside, we look good. And we're even doing the right things at times. But it's out of a sense of fear, not of love. And, and this verse is saying, we don't, God doesn't want these in our lives. He doesn't want us doing these things out of fear, but out of God's love. If this water is God's love, then this is the hope that as God's love fills us, that these fears eventually will run out. That as more and more of God's love fills us, that it there is no more room for fear. The problem is, though, it's easy for us to miss the love part. We get so hung up on the doing the right things part, and, and when we fail, we try to put it back into our lives. But here's the thing that is so important. God wants to deal with those actions or lack of action in our life, but we, he wants it to come from a place of love, not fear. If we are filled with love, then there's no space for those fears in our lives. And if we're filled with love, you can see it overflows. That's that last part. We love because he first loved us. It will spill out of us to the people around us. But let me be honest for a moment about this text. There are times I don't believe it. I'll, I'll admit, as your pastor, there are times I don't believe the text. I doubt the truth of it 
because it seems too good to be true. I remember uh, a while back hearing a worship song that has as its chorus, there is no fear in love. Mel's gonna sing it next week. But I remember listening to that worship chorus and you know what my initial reaction was? It's not true. That was my initial reaction. It shocked me and and it revealed my heart's response because music can do that to us sometimes because I've read that text multiple times in 1 John. And here's the thing, sometimes when we approach the Bible, we, we just say internally, it's true, I'm reading it, it's true, but it doesn't penetrate into the heart. That's what I recognized at that moment. That verse hadn't penetrated my heart. And I realized that so many Christians live in fear of God. But it's not a healthy fear that leads to freedom. It's an unhealthy fear that that keeps us doing right, possibly on the outside, for fear of punishment, but without a burning passion within us for the God who saved us and dwells with us. So again, I say, come Holy Spirit and reveal yourself to us this morning. We need to feel that love. But this text from 1 John, I'm gonna go back a little bit and give us some context of this verse. In verse eight and nine, right before, it says this, whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God's love invites us to love. It overflows, it compels us to love. If we have experienced the love of God, the all-forgiving power of his love, then that love should flow out of us individually and as a community of faith onto all of those around us. And when it says that God is love, we have to understand the depth of this statement. It doesn't say God is loving, although he is. And it doesn't say that one of the things that God does is to love us, although that is true as well. What John is trying to convey to each of us is that the essence of God's being is love. That all he does is loving. All that God does is in love. John is defining the character and defining the mean to be in relationship with God in love. And it goes on, nine and 10, here here are these words. This is just absolutely amazing. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's ultimate act of self-revelation is revealed to us in Jesus. Let me say it again. God's ultimate act of self-revelation is revealed to us in Jesus. It is God's love that initiated his sending Jesus to earth. The word made flesh, God dwelling with us in Jesus. God loved us first. God initiated the covenant of love through Jesus Christ. And, that, and it's the sending of Jesus that we have life. But this life comes from that atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's the second time that First John uses that word when he calls Jesus' death an atoning sacrifice. This 
this phrase, atoning sacrifice, it comes from a, a Greek word, halasmos, which means the act of removing an offense which repairs a relationship with God. The act of removing offense that repairs a relationship with God. We translate it as propitiation. Next slide, propitiation. Let's say it together, propitiation. That's a hard word to say. You can use that this week in a sentence. You'll impress your people around you. Propitiation, hear this, is the antidote to fear of punishment. You have blank looks. It means that someone who has been unjustly wrong has been satisfied. That a suitable sacrifice has been made to atone for sin. We sometimes translate it as mercy. Jesus paid the punishment for our sins. You don't have to fear punishment. Jesus paid the punishment for our sins. Children of God, this is important. I should have heard an amen in that one. We serve a God who is loving and holy. For God to stay holy, hear this. I know it's hard, you, you wanna look at the baby. Hear this, come right up here. For God to stay holy, he cannot overlook sin. He can't say it's, it's okay. It's okay you murdered your brother. It's okay you stole something. It's okay that you harbor bitterness. No, because God wants things to be made right. He demands justice. God doesn't overlook sin and he shouldn't. Our sin deserves the righteous wrath of God. Just look at the world today. When we understand that holiness, then we should be in awe of the fact that God himself forgave our sins by pouring out his wrath on Jesus. That Jesus was the halasmos, the propitiation. He was the acceptable sacrifice that forgave our sin, that took the punishment. Jesus died for us, the ungodly and undeserving. We have no fear of punishment. But more than that, Jesus invited us into relationship. And our relationship isn't based on performance. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Those who accept the offer of salvation in Jesus have been made children of God in spite of what we have done or not done. That is truly amazing love. The amazing love of God. His perfect love that casts out fear. Let me say a couple more words about this, this idea, this propitiation. It's only used six times in the New Testament, twice in 1 John, twice in Hebrews, once in Romans, once in Luke. Let me read for you the Romans verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his, what's the word? Was it what you did? No. By his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Remember Passover? He had passed over former sins. But I think the context that will help us the most comes from Hebrews. Check this, check this out. Hebrews 2, 17. This is important. Therefore, Jesus 
had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect. He had to be come to earth so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement. The word there is propitiation, a halasmos for the sins of the people. So Jesus, the high priest, makes the acceptable sacrifice for our sins and in and we are forgiven. He takes on the punishment himself. And in chapter nine of Hebrews, the author speaks of the first covenant. We've been talking about Moses all summer, right? And even now, that covenant that was made when God spoke directly to Moses, when God gave Moses the law and the details of the tabernacle. Remember? Remember from Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy? God gave them the instructions to build the tabernacle. Do you remember that? And and why were they to build the tabernacle? Because God's presence would reside in the tabernacle. And what was the tabernacle? It was a giant tent. And he gave them all the instructions for this giant tent. And he said, the people could come into the tabernacle, but behind there was another curtain. And behind that curtain was a small area, which was the holy of holies. And God's presence resided in that holy of holies. And in that holy of holies, there was, a, there was an altar and there was incense and there was the Ark of the Covenant. Remember? And what was in the Ark of the Covenant? Do you remember what was in the Ark? There, there was some manna to remind them of their times of wandering in the desert that they'd always remember that God provided. There was Aaron's staff And then there were the two tablets, the covenant, the 10 commandments, or as we learned this summer, the 10 words. In that ark, overlaid in gold, where the law was in there to remind the people of God's law for them. But what's on top of the ark of the covenant? This is cool. Two cherubs overseeing what? Let's read. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. You know what we translate mercy seat? The propitiation. Check this. Above the law is always grace. Where would you like God to judge you from? He's gonna judge you from the mercy seat, the propitiation seat. Even back then, grace is always over the law. Even back then, God provided a way out of our punishment. There is no fear. There's no fear. How cool is that? Built into the very fabric of God's character is mercy and love. God God will sit on the mercy seat and judge you. Yes. Someone ought to say amen. God's going to sit on the, I don't think you heard me. God's going to sit on the mercy seat and judge you. Yeah, there we go. God. It's a tough crowd this morning. You know why? Because we don't believe it. We think, well, but, you know, but I got to do those 10 things. Yeah, God wants you to do those 10 things that are in that law. But if you fail, 
what's going to happen? Mercy. But I didn't live up to it. Mercy. Grace. Always covers the law if we will accept it. So I go back to our text. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears does not reach perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. When we understand the depth of that mercy and love that flows from the heart of the Father to us, we should be in absolute security of our faith. We shouldn't fear losing his love. We shouldn't be ashamed and think that we deserve punishment. When we understand that God is love, when we recognize how much we have been forgiven, it should leave us in awe. And from that love flows our heart that desires to love others. We don't follow God's word because we have to. We should follow God's word because we have experienced the amazing love of God. And from that love, we love others. Can you glimpse that? I hope you can feel that. See, one of the best things about being a dad is the love I have for my children and the pride and excitement that I have when, when, in who they are and who they're becoming. But there are times that I have to punish them. All of you as parents, you understand that. But it's out of love. And most of the time, they understand it. Some of the time, they don't get it. And they're not gonna get it for a long time. In fact, some of you who are parents now, you go back and you call your parents and say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I get it now. I finally understand. We're a little slow sometimes. But the real thrill comes when they do what they're supposed to do, not because they fear me, but because they love me. The real thrill is that love that I have for them and the love they have for me. What joy, isn't that joyous? That's an amazing thing. See, that's, that's the way our Heavenly Father feels about you. He's thrilled, he's overjoyed, he is merciful, he is forgiving. What an incredibly risky, generous love God has for us. This is the scandal, this is the mystery of God's great love and mercy through Jesus Christ. We serve a God who is absolutely holy, absolutely powerful and supreme, yet at the same time is shockingly intimate with us. This is the good news. God's perfect love has cast out fear. Let us pray. Lord, may we understand the depth of your mercy. May we feel the love that you have for us. Come Holy Spirit, remind us once more, fill us with your love so it may overflow. Break our hearts of stone, O oh God, even now. Even now, O oh God. May we know this amazing love. Amen.